There's 33 of them. So call every one of them and tell them that you want a special session. Hopefully we can uh, put a little pressure on them and, and get them to, to move that direction. Hello everyone, I'm Brandon Lewis, founder of the Tennessee Conservative. Today, Clay Doggett, State Representative for District 70, which covers Giles and part of Lawrence counties, joins me. Clay serves as the chair of the Criminal Justice Subcommittee and member of the Agriculture Committee and the Criminal Justice Committee, uh, Natural Resource Committee, and Naming and Designating Committees. Clay is married with four children and owner of Blue Line Pressure Washing. He is a member of the Church of Christ and received his bachelor's degree in history and political science at the University of Alabama, Huntsville. Clay, welcome to the program and thank you, buddy. Yes, sir. Thank you so much for having me. So we both went to school in Alabama. Uh, I ran a big painting business. You run a big pressure washing business. Now I run the Academy for Professional Painting Contractors. So I think we got a lot in common here. Um, do you know what painting and politics and the press all have in common? I do not. You're always trying to cover something up. <laughs> and so glad to have you on here, Clay. Thanks. Thanks for being here. Um, so I've got a few questions here. A lot of them have to do with, with what you do in the committees. Uh, before we get into there, you know, we've gone through a very odd 18 months. 100 percent of state representatives signed on for a special session. The Senate is dragging its feet. For what reason? I can't figure out. We've got Janice Bowling and a handful of state senators and these names keep piling up. They've been coming in today or asking for the same thing. Um, you know, we've had a, a huge dramatic impact on business, employment and education, not necessarily because of the virus, but because of the government intervention. What are you hearing in your district and how do conservatives feel about what's going on in your neck of the woods? Well, that's a question I get asked quite a bit uh, here at home is why are we not having a special session? And so, um, you know, when they see the, the articles and, and the news where the House uh, has signed on to have this special session and, and yet it takes uh, the Senate as well. And I try to explain that to folks. What I've been doing is encouraging um, my constituency to not only call our senator, Dr. Joey Hensley, which is on board with a special session, but to call the other senators as well. Uh, there's 33 of them. So call every one of them and tell them that you want a special session. And uh, I've had several that have started that process this week. So hopefully we can uh, put a little pressure on them and, and get them to, to move that direction. Outside of the, the issue of the special uh, session, Clay, like what, what are you hearing? I mean, you, if you're like me, I talk to people in the supermarket. I talk to people when I go to a restaurant. I'm kind of a, I'm always trying to pick up the vibe. Uh, how are people feeling about what's going on in, in schools, what's going on in business? There's, you know, there's really a lot of people are having to choose between their job and taking some medical treatment. Maybe they, they don't want or maybe they've had COVID and they don't need it. Uh, what what, you know, what does your industrial and vocational makeup and educational makeup look like in your counties? And, you know, what are people's concerns locally? Well, it, you know, it, it's a wide uh, plethora of things that folks are concerned with. I've got folks that are calling concerned over the uh, mandate that our president uh, issued last week about uh, the vaccines. I've got a lot of folks that are really upset about that. And then I've got some folks that are calling a smaller number that are upset because we're not pushing a mandate for vaccines in our state. And so you get it both ways, really. But 
the overwhelming majority of folks are concerned with um, being forced to take a vaccine. And I can understand that. My wife works in healthcare. Uh, it was something that has bothered her as well to see. And, and I've got a lot of healthcare workers that are calling and saying, you know, we're being told we have to take this. And, you know, one, we, we really don't know a whole lot about it. It's still under the emergency youth authorization period. Uh, two, uh, they don't know what the long-term effects are. We, those that are taking the vaccine right now are really the test subjects for, for this process. Generally, when it goes through, uh, when, a, when any kind of new medication or vaccine uh, goes through um, the trial phases, there's a group, a controlled group that goes through and, and they see what happens during that, that process to make a determination whether it's a good good vaccine or a good product or whatever they're going to put out there on the market. Uh, but but we are, uh, as citizens of this country, we are the guinea pigs for this, for this vaccine out the gate. And so folks are concerned about that. And the third thing I hear is if, if we're in such a, a health crisis right now, you know, our hospital beds are, are full, uh, staffing is low, why are we firing healthcare uh, providers who are refusing because on, on grounds of maybe personal choice or religious exemption or they just don't know and they're scared to take a vaccine, but we're firing these folks when we need them in our hospitals, in our emergency rooms, in our clinics, providing health care to, to, to the people of Tennessee. And so uh, it's not only going on here. I, I talk with people in Alabama as well, and, and it's the same things there in Alabama and in other states I know I'm, I'm certain of. But in Tennessee, those are the big things that we're hearing uh, right now. Well, thank you for sharing that with us and you know, switching gears. Um, this is a subject that rarely gets discussed outside of local conservative or GOP groups, which kind of is amazing to me. Um, something that you're interested in and know a little bit about is the 10th Amendment nullification. And I've often been curious, you know, why state lawmakers are so willing to relinquish Tennessee's powers to the federal government and why we have never really seen nullification used, especially in situations when things are blatantly unconstitutional, like the CDC issuing rent moratoriums, as if they could even do that. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, you know, and it also, if you're a Christian, the 10th, you know, I mean, the 10 commandments says thou shalt not steal. And so when a, when a government organization, you know, codifies theft or tries to, uh, or mandates, it's kind of weird. Uh, why don't we ever see states really owning their power as is written in the constitution. I think it's a very strange thing that, that it does not happen. Mm -hmm. Well, there were some States out West uh, that I was really encouraged by. I think Idaho and uh, maybe it was South Dakota or North Dakota, Montana. They had put some, some legislation in place this, this past year that um, helped their state go through that nullification process. Uh, from what I have studied, is it takes, uh, there's got to be some type of mechanism for us as a state to nullify uh, anything that comes down from the federal government. What that process is, no one really knows uh, in our state. And so there, myself, along with several other lawmakers in, in Nashville this year, all had the same idea to, to create the nullification process for our state. And yet we all had the same end goal, the, the route that which we took uh, they were all different. And so I think there was about four different bills this year that went through the General Assembly that that provided that mechanism for nullification. 
my bill unfortunately did not make it uh, through the Senate. Uh, it was killed in the committee. But there was at least one I know of that uh, Representative Mark Hall from over in your neck of the woods carried that did uh, make it through on the House floor. I'm not, not for sure that it made it all the way through the Senate. But uh, what we were trying to do was just provide that that avenue to, to set it up so that we would know here's the process that we can use if something comes down from the federal government, uh, executive orders or mandates or edicts or what have you. We've got a we've got a way that we can in Tennessee say no, we're not we're not good with this, and so uh, we can begin that nullification process. Well, I would love to see that happen. You know. Um... I don't know if you're hearing this like I'm hearing it. People that I've never seen. I mean, I'm not, I'm no stranger. I didn't just start doing this yesterday. Like I ran big federal campaigns, statewide campaigns. I wrote a book on it. I'm in it. I've never seen people so mad at their own government on the Republican side ever. Like not like boiling over lids off the pot. And, and like, it's like some people up in Nashville, like they just don't, they don't think it's happening. And I think maybe 2022, we might even be able to get some rhinos to push a few things through committee and subcommittee, because we're going to be reporting on it uh, and covering it closely. Uh, so I hope that we can get something done there. Uh, you serve on the criminal justice committee and the, and the chair um, of the criminal, criminal justice subcommittee. Could you talk to me about some of the challenges that law enforcement is currently facing in Tennessee, especially with this massive flood of illegal immigration we're experiencing and, you know, how can the legislature do something to help safeguard Tennessee's border through law enforcement? Well, it, um, I, I really enjoy being on the criminal justice uh, committee in the house and, and very humbled to be chosen to serve as the chairman of the subcommittee. Uh, we've got a very, which I, I think is the best committee in, in the in the legislature. We we get all the bills that come through before they move on to that full criminal justice committee. We we get to bring them through and really vet them and ask the tough questions and go through things. And uh, this past year we had law which law enforcement's in in there all the time. But they we really had several bills this year that law enforcement was uh, there with and and so. Um, some they liked, some they didn't like, uh, but at the end of the day, uh, what we're seeing is some challenges that they've been presented with. Uh, and working as a former law enforcement officer myself, uh, when it comes to uh, Im illegal immigration, it's, uh, it's, it can be discouraging because the federal government does not do their part. Uh, we do what we're supposed to do in the state and local levels, and then the feds do not uphold their end of the bargain. So we end up with the short end of the stick. The taxpayers of our communities and our state are paying for illegal immigrants to be, that are criminals, to be housed in our jails, to be fed, uh, to receive the medical treatment and the dental treatment and all the things that, that anyone uh, would be privy to as, a, as an inmate of um, a facility in this state. The illegal immigrants are getting it as well. And then when it's all over with, once they go to court and there's a certain amount of time that they have after their sentence is up, that immigration and customs have to come pick them up. And if they don't pick them up, then you just turn them loose. Mm. In my time in law enforcement, I only saw one time when the federal government came and picked up someone 
and uh, and two years later they were back in town. So uh, they had wherever they took them, they made they made their way back. And so it uh, it certainly is discouraging for law enforcement, but it's also very dangerous uh, because if you go back and look at crimes that illegal immigrants have committed in this state, um, you know murder. Uh, we've had troopers that have been killed by illegal immigrants. Uh, families have uh, been torn apart because illegal immigrants have, have committed crimes against them and, and murder. And so that's that's the big one for me uh, that, that we see. Not every illegal immigrant is out committing murder or creating or, or breaking crimes other than being here illegally. But uh, it's it's tough. It's tough for law enforcement when you do your job and then the feds do not do they don't uphold their end of the bargain that they're supposed to. Guys, if you like conservative news, you've got very little selection in the state of Tennessee. Only 7% of people in the media identified as Republican in 2016, the last time they did the study, which means there's probably fewer now. So every time you get news through a Tennessee broadsheet, it goes through the lens of liberalism, and what you're left with is a bunch of claptrap. So if you don't like that stuff, because I don't, uh, go to TennesseeConservativeNews.com slash support. And if you give any amount, any amount, we will send you two proud Tennessee conservative bumper stickers. And if you get $50 or more, we will give you this leftist, I know this leftist tear tumble. That's what, what Brian or what Ben Shapiro says. We'll send you this proud Tennessee tumbler. And uh, if you put Boone's Farm into this, it comes out uh, a very nice aged Cabernet. It has magical properties. Uh, you can also keep it in your car if you have to prop it up underneath a tire to change a tire. It's made of titanium uh, and reinforced steel. So you're going to love this puppy. Uh, $50 or more. We'll also send you this directory, which all of the state and local officials love. And if there's something coming down the, the pike and you don't agree with it, or if you want to give them encouragement, uh, we'll send that in the U.S. Postal Service. That's TennesseeConservativeNews.com slash support, or hit the red button at the top of the homepage back to the questions. Well, I'm increasingly convinced, as I know Representative Griffey is, who's been about the only outspoken lawmaker in all of Tennessee on illegal immigration, and he was not treated very well. Um, I don't think when he when he tried to really bring the issue up so we could get some stuff you know, stop. I know we've got huge lobbies in the Chamber of Commerce and the NFIB and lots of folks. I mean, we've got some senators wanting illegal immigrants to get free tuition to college, as if we do not have schools already that are probably 20, 30 percent full of, I mean, we're basically educating Mexico and Guatemala's children at taxpayer expense, $11,000 a year. It's, it's remarkable that we do not take steps to cut off the, the magnets that draw crime and, and really put strains on already broken and struggling systems in education, health care, criminal justice. I just wish our Republican supermajority had a little bit more willpower when it came to tackling these things, and maybe we'll see it in 2022. I hope so. Um, another question, you're involved in the uh, National Wild Turkey Federation, the Tennessee Firearms Association, the National uh, Rifle Association, Quail Forever. Can you talk about really there's a bunch of stuff here, so you, you feel free to take this piecemeal. And uh, number one is, can you tell me about some of the legal challenges that our uh, permitless carry bill is facing, because it's not constitutional carry? Uh, and are we going to have to go back to the drawing board on this? Can it be salvaged? And then I'm, I'll, I'll save this second question so you, you don't have to pivot back and forth, but take that one first. What are your thoughts okay. there? Well, you know, the one of the things that I campaigned on when I when I was first running was 
uh, restoring our Second Amendment rights. And people looked at me really funny because I said restore. And they said, what do you mean restore? We have the Second Amendment. You know, I've got a permit that says that I can carry. And I'm like, well, that's that's not that's not true. That, that's not true to, to your rights as to what our, our Constitution says. And so I want to restore that. I want to give you that right. I want to uh, release that right that, that we have so that you can uh, carry constitutionally. Um, a lot of it's been really interesting. People that I, I thought that would be a real big supporters of true constitutional carry uh, were not. It was really shocking uh, to see uh, folks not only here in my district, but across the state who, you know, they they wanted to make sure, yeah, I want you to be able to, I want constitutional carry, but you've got to have some training first, you know, and, and, and I always advocate training uh, for firearms. Um, you need it. You need to, you need to go to the range. You need to shoot. You need to know how to handle your firearms that you, you use. Uh, I was really disappointed, uh, frankly, when I heard that we were going to have constitutional carry two years ago and then saw the language and realized that it was not true constitutional carry. In my honest opinion, it's better than it's better than what we had uh, with a and, and I've been calling it a permitless carry um, system ever since I first saw that language. But uh, I, I think it's better than what we have now with the permit. If you want to get the permit, you know, I, I'm, I'm disappointed that other states are not moving this direction, you know, because you still need the permit for reciprocity purposes. If you go into Alabama or Georgia or Arkansas or Mississippi or any other state just about, you've got to have your permit when really I should be able to cross state lines and go other places under true constitutional carry, which would need to be examined uh, really at the federal level. But I, um, as far as salvageable, I think it is. I think it, it is a good step in the right direction. Um, had we went with full-on constitutional carry, I don't think it would have passed the General Assembly. And I know that may be a big shocker, but I, I don't think it would have, I would have certainly voted for it. Uh, there were some amendments that came up that would have made it true constitutional carry uh, that was brought up on the floor the day that we voted on this permitless carry bill. I voted for the amendments along with some of the, uh, the Democrats also voted for the amendments. And when I went and asked them, you know, well, I went and told them, thank you for your support on that. And they said, no, I was voting to not do that. I said, oh, no, you were voting for true constitutional carry. And so uh, they may have went back and changed their votes. I'm not sure. But, uh, you know, there was a few of us that voted for that. I think I think it's in a good spot. I think moving forward, we're, you're going to see some more changes to that, some some changes that are very positive. And then eventually, uh, hopefully, we're going to get to that true constitutional carry state. I hope so. I know that John over at the Tennessee Firearms Association does a great job. I mean, really does a good job of informing people about what's really go going on. And it's so frustrating when you know what's going on. And it doesn't take long to figure out what's going on. I mean, like somebody can like in 10 minutes explain it. But Lord, the spinning. I just does not when you lie to people, it does not build trust. Right. And uh, it, it, it baffles me how often somebody will look at a tweet or look at a little look at a little statement on Facebook. And they're like, well, Bill Lee said this. I said, well, saying ain't the law. Mm -hmm. Saying is not the law. 
That is not the law. We don't live under sayings. You can't, you know, we get pulled over by the police. You go, well, look at this tweet I got from Bill Lee. You can't show them the tweet from Bill Lee. There has to be legislation behind it. Also comment on the DCS reporting and the letter you just uh, released on ATF rule changes and explain uh, to our listeners, you know, what those acronyms are and what they mean. Okay. Uh, DCS is Department of Children's Services. And so uh, last year, about this time last year, we began working on some legislation to address an issue that I saw firsthand in law enforcement. And I've also had constituents who have experienced uh, issues and and these things that we were looking to address with DCS, uh, even had employees that it was used against. And, And the big issue that I'm talking about is how easily DCS, Department of Children's Services, can be weaponized against someone. And so take, for instance, maybe uh, uh, you and your spouse have divorced, you have children. Uh, It may have been, may not have been a very pleasant uh, divorce or maybe some animosity there and and hard negative feelings between each other. But, uh, you know, you try to do the right thing. You're a good dad. Uh, She's a good mom to the kids. But anonymous reporting comes and says that uh, there's a report made that, that says that you have, you're not feeding the kids, that you abuse them, that the house is nasty and that uh, they're lit there when they're with you, they're in very poor uh, conditions. Because that report has been made, DCS has to conduct some type of investigation into this. And so generally what happens is they're going to send Uh, a representative or an agent of DCS to your home. Uh, A lot of times they will ask for law enforcement to come as a, um, you know, just someone to be there with them for safety purposes, just to give them that escort to the property. But they're going to try to talk to you and they're going to try to do this investigation to see. Nine times out of 10, in my personal experience, it's always been, well, this looks like it was a bogus report or, you know, the children are in good shape. Your home is, you know, okay. Everything that they need, you know, is here. But they bring law enforcement with them for one. And it would generally puts folks in a very uh, intimidated state because when you have law enforcement with you and someone from the state that is threatening to take your children at that mm-hmm. moment, if they want to, if they need to, And so uh, that's some of the things that's happened. It also, with anonymous reporting, you can go on to a website. You don't have to put your name in. You can just put down uh, the respondent or the the person's information as to where they live. You make the allegations or the claims, and they're going to go out and check it out. I had an employee that had it happen to him three times because there was a disagreement between he and the the ex-wife. And so they were coming to work wanting to visit with him at work. They were going to his home, you know, on, on different occasions. And so it was it was harassment is what it was. And so what we did is we crafted a bill that said uh, there would be no, no longer there would be any uh, anonymous reporting. You would have to give your information when you made the report of suspected child abuse or neglect. When doing that, the, you as the, the, the complainant, your information would not be shared with those that uh, are going to be investigated. However, let's say that, <clears throat> excuse me, you've had um, 
you know, this has happened two or three times to you and, and you're fed up as harassment, you could go to the judge and ask for that person's information to be, you ask for them to be made known so that you could bring suit against them. Now, one of the big pushbacks that we got was from the department saying, one, uh, people are not going to call and give information uh, to report the suspected child abuse or neglect because they're they're afraid of retaliation. Maybe they're afraid for a retaliation from a boss or the ex-spouse or a preacher or whoever it is that they're reporting on. And so they're not going to do that. And secondly, they're not going to uh, call and report it because they they don't want to have um, their name put out there. They, they don't want their, their name involved. And so what we wanted to do was make sure that by having them, by having that information available, they would be able to find some way to come back and have suit. And so by doing so, we're, we're having a summer study next week and we're looking at doing it in um, Chairman Mary Littleton's committee is where it will be. We're going to ask for maybe some new language in the bill and make it confidential reporting uh, is what we want to do is the change the same way that uh, for elder abuse, it's all confidential reporting. When you call law enforcement and make a report of something, a crime being committed, it's considered confidential unless a judge or someone uh, asks for that. Uh, it's important that you're able to face your accusers and and so by, by doing that, um, we would hope this would help. Another, another point I wanted to bring up about it that Department of uh, Children's Services told us is that we already have a mechanism in place for um, people that file false reports. It's a felony. And so if they file a false report of this, they can be charged. So we don't need this bill. And so my question to them was, well, how do you know who to charge with the false report <laughs> if you don't have their information? And so they couldn't they couldn't give me an answer on that. That, that sounds like bureaucratic logic, if I've ever is. heard it. That, that's a that's a paper shuffler's answer right there. It is very much so. Yeah, I would I could imagine, and I've had um I've had relatives and, and in-laws that have been put in that situation. And it, it makes you want to lean over and look at your wife and say, honey, we're never getting divorced. We are not going through this shenanigans. You know, of course, we're a little bit more normal people. I think we, you know, if anything ever happened, we could be civilized to one another. But it is terrible because I've watched this happen to people. And I think if you, and it's very intimidating, law enforcement shows up, DH, you know, DH, DCS shows up and, and you haven't done anything wrong, I would be livid and angry and I would want to have a chance. I'd be like, okay, great. You've been here. We've looked, we need to figure out who this person is and we need to make sure that they, you know, they pay a, a price for abusing the system. Um, talk a little bit about uh, some of the ATF rule changes. I know that you've been working on that. I think I recently saw a program uh, where you address some of that. Talk to that and what's been going on there and explain what ATF is. Sure, ATF is the Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms. Uh, it's a federal uh, agency. Uh, that I believe works through the Department of Justice uh, up in Washington. But uh, they proposed some rule changes earlier this year, back in May, that addressed a couple things of interest. Uh, one was um, 
about a basically it was about um, a registration it, it was going to create a national firearms registry mm. and so uh, in doing so every time that there was a transaction that was made uh, you would have to report to the registry about this transactions uh, that was being made and so if you give your son or daughter a, a shotgun or a 22 rifle or whatever you, for Christmas, then you've got to report that transaction. Uh, if you, uh, you you sell one to a coworker or buy one at a, a swap meet somewhere, uh, you've got to report that information to the ATF and they keep a record of that. And so that's one of the things that we fought in the General Assembly this year Again, this time last year, we sat down and, and started looking at some things that would need addressed. And um, a couple of us had this idea about uh, banning a firearms registry. If you remember last summer, you saw uh, some of the presidential candidates that were running um, on the Democrat side were talking about, uh, I think it was uh, the guy from... Uh, from Texas was he was going to take everybody's AR-15s or something like that. He was going to take everybody's. Oh family. yeah, that I, I'll think of his name here in a minute. It's was it Beto Beto O'Rourke? Beto O'Rourke. I'm yes. glad I've already forgotten who he is. Yeah, and so he had he come up with that, and I was thinking, wow, you know. And then um, there were several other, and, and Joe Biden has made numerous comments. Kamala Harris has made numerous comments about it, and and last year we I, I thought you know what we need to be working on something just in case. Um, this ends up happening one day down the road. And so we worked on it. Uh, the Tennessee Farm Association worked with us, uh, helped us with it. Um, my friends over at T-Rex Arms uh, helped with it, had a lot of input on this. Uh, a lot of great minds went together on this. And we created uh, a bill that would say, you can't have a registry in Tennessee. So no state agency or local departments, police departments, anyone could collect your information and keep it uh, for the purpose of, of having, creating this registry. We also put a caveat in there that if the registry, if the, any information that was uh, harvested was shared with the federal government for the purposes of a, a national registry, those persons in our state could be convicted of a, they'd be charged with a felony and uh, could lose their job. And so we ended up making some changes. Dr. Brian Terry, representative from over in Rutherford County, had a bill, he called it the FIPA, and I think it was the Farms Information Privacy and Protection Act, kind of like HIPAA. Uh, and so our two bills together kind of, we took some things out of ours and he did some things with his to make those two work together. So we banned the registry uh, in the state of Tennessee with our legislation. He banned the sharing of any information collected with the federal government in, in the state of Tennessee. And so with this proposed rule change, uh, it it got us, it got on our radar pretty quick. And so uh, we wanted to reach out to our governor and our attorney general to let them know that if the rules do come to fruition, if it does come in, because the ATF essentially with their rulemaking was creating law, which is not uh, in their purview. That is something that is reserved specifically to the United States Congress, the House and the Senate. It is not to be done through a bureaucratic agency. And so I'm not sure of how many laws that we have out there on the books now federally that were that come from a bureaucratic agency somewhere that the bureaucracy has created and 
yet never was legislation brought to do it. So there was no legislation for these rule changes. The other uh, part on there was the uh, the supports uh, for the AR pistols. A lot of people have those. If you had these supports, it would ban those uh, those supports on there. So if you had one, it would automatically make you a felon right out the gate. You would you would be charged with a felony. And so we pushed back and 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 against this, and we wrote wrote our letter. Thankfully, um, the guy that was being put forward as the new acting director of the ATF, his nomination was withdrawn. I believe it was last week, early last week, his mm -hmm. nomination had been withdrawn. And so that was a good, that was a good sign. You know, there was several uh, on both sides of the aisle in Washington that were pushing back uh, on this guy's nomination. And so uh, I was glad to see that. Not sure what's happened with the rules. I don't know if they'll still be in place, but the guy that uh, they had put in for that, that nominee was very much so in favor of expanding government through his agency uh, to do things by creating law when he has no um, authority to do so. Well, I hope that you go ahead and push that stuff through because it it ain't it ain't if anymore. It's when. Right. And when, for some reason, gets earlier all the time lately. Mm -hmm. Well, that'll never happen in the United States. That'll never happen in Tennessee. That'll never happen. And, buddy, it, it last 18 months, everything that would never happen in Tennessee, many, many things have already happened and are continuing to happen. Um, so you've been very kind with your time. This has been a great interview where I have learned stuff. Occasionally I will interview people and I just get like sound bites and platitudes. And you can kind of tell that maybe folks go up to, to Nashville and they just like, they, they warm as chair. And then maybe a few things stick in the old gray cells, but not much. And then you talk to them, you're like, well, those are some good, those are some good talking points uh, for a Republican ladies meeting. But, but, you know, typically our readers and watchers want to learn something and you've done a great job delivering on that. So I appreciate your time. Uh, you've got to get back to your family. So I'll let you, you know, have the last word. What would you like to, to leave conservatives all over Tennessee with? Hey, I, well, I just want to say pray for our state, pray for, uh, all those that are elected for their families. It's a very difficult, uh, it's very hard on, on the, uh, on the families, uh, when you have someone that's serving an elected office, either from city council member to county commissioner, mayors, county executives, the state house, you name it, any elected office, um, it, it's tough. And especially on the family members because they don't have a vote, but, uh, so often, Many times folks will come after them in the grocery stores and at the gas stations and share their opinions on on the matter, you know, at, at hand. So uh, but pray, pray for our um, pray for elected officials, pray for this state, pray for our country and our president that they use uh, good discernment when they make decisions and that uh, they make the right ones. Well, thank you so much, Clay, for being here. This has been a wonderful interview, as I said previously. Guys, if you're watching this and if you want to uh, see more of our conservative leaders, you can go to TennesseeConservativeNews.com. Do click that uh, subscribe button and you'll get our daily e-newsletter. And occasionally we will send you a text message if it is an essential thing, because God knows conservatives would never be censored on social media. There's no reason we'd have to build a list of emails or uh, text messages to be able to communicate with you directly, but please do go there. Uh, until next time, I'm Brandon Lewis with the Tennessee Conservative, signing off.